Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I am Ed Reed, Africa and LNG editor at Energy Voice, and I'm delighted Hamish Penman, digital journalist, and Andrew Dykes, content editor, are here too. Alistair Thomas, uh, clearly not here. He, he made the mistake of stepping outside. He's now banging on the doors, uh, try, trying to get in through the windows, uh, obviously, but we, we, we can't hear him. Uh, and in many ways, that feels like a, uh, like a valuable segue into uh, the windfall tax, where also banging on the windows, trying to, trying to be heard, are renewable energy companies who have been facing what looks like uh, an unexpected uh, tax imposition this week. Uh, The government clearly uh, trying to make efforts to balance its books. Hamish, how does it look? Uh, Wait and see. Not good initially, but... um... There's still plenty to be done, but yeah, it was something of a, a bolt from the blue. Uh, there had been speculation for weeks, I suppose, and calls from some courts for the government to go after after energy generators in the same way they have done um, for oil and gas. But given that Liz Truss was pretty clear, and it's about the only thing she has been clear of, um, about not extending the windfall tax on, on North Sea producers, um, and it wasn't announced at the same time as all those other energy initiatives, it kind of had been thought that renewable companies were, were in the clear, but um, that's now not the case. Uh, it was announced late on Tuesday night, I think, uh, on the eve of the floating offshore wind conference in Aberdeen, uh, fittingly, that a cost plus revenue limit is in the pipeline to um, to cap the amount green energy generators can make. Uh, government says it's intended to reduce the impact of wholesale prices on consumers and the taxpayer. Um, so just some background on how the market functions, because it's quite key. Um, but under the current system, the price is price of power is set um, kind of roughly every half an hour, I think, uh, by the cost of the last unit of energy needed to meet the demand. And because renewable energy is intermittent and gas can be fed in as and when, it's usually gas. Uh, so it means that low-cost renewable energy, particularly from developments launched prior to 2015, which are um, allowed to sell their power on the open market, is flogged at the same price as hydrocarbons, even though it is cheaper to produce. Uh, so the cost plus revenue limit is intended to sever this link. The precise mechanisms of it and the level that profits will be capped at uh, is subject to consultation, which will be launched shortly. Uh, not exactly how clear how it's um, going to sever the link directly, um, but I suspect the intention is to incentivize projects to to move on to long-term contracts for difference um, by limiting the, the amount that they're able to make on the open market. Um, so ministers are working closely with the industry on the detail of the proposal ahead of it coming into force from the start of next year, I believe. Um, and just to clarify, these rules will impact England and Wales as it stands. So there are discussions about implementing them in Scotland too. Uh, and yeah, as I mentioned, it was announced hours before uh, the Floaty Offshore Wind Conference kicked off in Aberdeen and it was... Met with quite a lot of ire from industry, not least because I imagine quite a lot of them had to hurriedly rewrite their speeches and presentations um, at roughly it was ten thirty. The embargo broke, so that was um, that was nice for them. But yeah, CEO of Renewable UK, Dan McGrail, said it was concerned that it will send the wrong investor uh, signals to investors. Sorry, rescuing investment towards oil and gas. Greenpeace was suitably miffed as well. They called it a double standard. Um, and also without a hint of irony or awareness, they asked why the government wasn't implementing a windfall tax on oil and gas. So I think somebody needs to tell them there's been one in place since May. Um, 
But yeah, no energy producer is safe from the steely gaze of the tax man, it seems. Certainly not for the next wee while, anyway. And, and so in terms of sort of what it's going to raise, I mean, obviously, it's, it's as you say, it's early days and we, we've, we've only had the sort of the initial projections. But do you think it's going to raise, is it, is it going to be sort of comparable to that sort of windfall tax on oil? I mean, I, I think, so for the, for the oil, there, there, was a, there was a sort of incentives to invest more, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. Do, you think, do you think there might be in similar incentives for the renewable energy Producers don't know because it seems like it's very it's a, it's quite a different tax even though it is still a windfall tax. So the one on oil and gas is X percent of profits, whereas this is on everything above a certain um, rate that they're receiving. So it's different in that regard. Is there another kind of uh, second approach as well, which is to heavily imply that they should be moved on to uh, sort of new contracts for difference that they're drawing up, which again. Light on detail. Yeah, well, I think that's the incentive of them. I, I won't go. To... <laughs> I won't use the word extortion, but it does. It does uh, sort of suggesting that you might be taxed an unknown amount in a way that they haven't decided yet, and then, or we have, you know, the mystery box. <laughs> you can go into these new contracts for difference. Do you want to sign up to those? Quasi Quartin been watching The Sopranos and has uh, taken a few cues from that. <laughs> I mean, for for a kind of free market government, it doesn't strike me i mean like this is separate to the idea about supporting consumers and severing the link between the gas price which i think is you know was already under consultation and it's probably very important in making clear to consumers the the price differences between like hydrocarbons and and renewables it seems like a rather blunt way of trying to do it in terms of well if you don't move on to these contracts we're going to take x amount of the money and you can't do anything about it unless you uh Unless you play our game, so that's the I, I, on the incentives point, Ed. I, I'm not sure at this stage they're still deciding on what the um, the cap's going to be. I think Renewable UK was suggesting it would be pre-war levels. It seems like a mental um, a mental calculation in 2022, <laughs> but um, but that's that's the kind of suggestion. So I, there is this consultation ongoing, and a, a lot of the companies, SSE Renewables, RWE, have already said we will be engaging with government. So. Uh, whether they're obviously they're going to be calling for it not to be too high government are going to want to try and raise as much cash as they possibly can but there's no indication yet as a figure i know when the windfall tax was announced it was that kind of five billion pounds for the for the public purse was announced that's actually raised gone up to seven billion now i believe because um because of the sustained high oil and gas prices but you would think a um mechanism for incentivizing investment might be quite a savvy move um maybe i'll go on to the consultation and suggest that that'll be my two pennies for the uh for the next few months yeah. <laughs> i mean i suppose kind of the, the the other thing that strikes is obviously europe in general i think is is kind of been talking about a sort of a similar move do you think that there's the risk of of this driving investment elsewhere right i mean i think obviously you know people keep on saying it's a global marketplace do you think that there is have you heard any noises from companies saying we are thinking about you know building building elsewhere as a, as a result of this. Not directly. I asked a couple of people about it at the floating offshore wind conference that we'll come to, and they were both very much. Um, we're still digesting what this means. One of them was Shell actually, and they're not going to have any producing asset or wind assets until the end of the decade. So they were they're probably not going to have to worry about it. Um, I suppose they could do. I think the European Union though were toying with similar ideas, so that perhaps excludes that market and then you really are looking further further afield so i think that a lot of the government's rationale on that will be oh, our renewable resources in the uk are so world leading that why on earth would you go anywhere else but the tax incentives can be quite strong ones um 
as as we've seen from uh, from other countries. So we'll see. There's still a long way to go on this consultation. But it's worth saying Norway has already done this and and raised kind of a twofold uh, windfall tax on generators both in their kind of the resource rent so just if it's like a hydropower plant you have access to natural resources and that's what you're deriving your revenue from so they have a kind of a tax system for that and then they've also put this similar um every 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 unit of power that you produce there's a levy like above a certain amount it, you know if the price goes high this levy is something like 23 percent. but basically on all these cumulative taxes if you're a hydropower operator in norway your marginal tax rate has shot up to something like 90 percent. ouch um, so, you know, people are considering all options and for, for Norway to be doing that with hydropower seems, you know, that's that's their main backbone of the grid, you know. Um, so everyone is considering all options, clearly, um, to try and ease the pain. And particularly with, with Norway in a sort of a supplier position to uh, to the rest of Europe, right? And I think there's obviously kind of questions there around sort of energy security. And I, I guess that's the kind of the problem, isn't it, that uh, governments face? Obviously, we're in sort of unprecedented times, but... Uh, Obviously, also, if you deter, if you put the, the, the brakes on, on, on generation too much, then then obviously that causes new problems that we are looking, you know, really quite, quite hard at, you know, given given the uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine and, 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 and the gas crunch. So I think that, that's a pretty good point to leave it there. But we'll be back after this short break. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Well, so given that uh, discussion of uh, the, the the new squeeze on uh, renewable providers, it, it, it seems like a curious question to ask. But Andy, how, what what is the mood uh, in the uh, in the uh, floating wind sector? <laughs> I think windfall taxes aside, uh, <laughs> marginally positive. Um, yeah, it, it would be uh, would have been remiss of them not to mention it. So Claire Mack kind of opened the uh, the first session of this event in Aberdeen this week, um, pulling absolutely no punches. Um, I think she said it was a sticking plaster so solution to a broken system. Um, and she kind of highlighted some of the um, the disparities, I suppose, in policy. They're basically saying there was an ideological nimbyism, which had meant you know solar and wind onshore builds have been curtailed up to this point, uh, and that transmission charges kind of uh, weren't very suitable for the... the uh, build out of renewables across the grid and yet they were now being taxed as well so that was the kind of opening prelude to the conference it's worth saying as well this is a, a sold out event there was a bit of uh trouble in aberdeen for people not getting in i think by monday they had a 200 person waiting list so you know floating wind very much the topic du jour um but the the main things to come out of the uh the sessions uh that i was in certainly there was a, a session a keynote speech from the offshore wind champion, Tim Pick, um, who compared the build-out of the 
industry and the, the wind industry in general to the ZX Spectrum game Manic Miner. Uh, that one's passed me by. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, a shout out to all the nerds, I think, but I, I appreciated the reference. <laughs> Basically likening, uh, you know, these, these uh, 20 levels and this very kind of primitive game, but, you know, people get better and better, and, and over the course of years, people are modding the game and all these other things. Kind of talk about the, this, the likening between that and the, the offshore wind development system. Um, it, it was niche, but I enjoyed it very much. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you were there to get that particular insight. I think that would, that would have passed passed by many of our competitors. If we'd, if we'd switched sessions, I wouldn't have had a Scooby. What he was <laughs> I don't know, in, in, a, in a room full of sort of 45-year-old offshore engineers, so the, the mood was positive. That was well received, <laughs> I thought. Um, there was then a kind of a main session with uh, some developers and uh, some infrastructure operators, port operators, and someone from the Global Wind Energy Council. Um, and I think... To pull out the sort of main points that uh, the, the session chair Claire Mack made, it's now a case of price ports and, and project pipelines. That's the main kind of topics for for floating wind to tackle. On price, they they were saying that the uh, the recent CFD rounds awarded for the first time a CFD contract to a very small floating offshore wind project. Um, but the consensus in the room overwhelmingly was that, that it's too low. So at the moment, the price that's been set, £87.30 per megawatt hour for this, I think, a 32 megawatt project, um, far too low. So they're, they're saying that's not a sustainable price. They were slightly worried that um, because the UK is some of the, the most forward market, the most forward thinking market on floating wind at the moment, certainly one of, um, that that price would begin to filter down over the next few years as a, a reasonable benchmark. Um, for the industry to try and aspire to. Um, and the, the thought at the moment is that they're saying that that doesn't work. So there needs to be a little bit of movement, I think, on, on people's conceptions of the price of flowing wind and certainly not to uh, count your chickens just yet that, as that being a, a reasonable expectation. Um, the other one was just kind of on, on project pipelines. The, the biggest message I suppose to take away from the whole thing was that uh, they just want structures in the water now. You know, they're past the demonstrator phase turbine makers like Vestas saying we know we're absolutely ready to meet this demand we just need some projects to start sticking some turbines on and uh and developers saying we just want to get the, the foundations in the water now and kind of get on with it um the final point in that was was ports and that kind of there were separate sessions that Hamish you attended one or two of them as well um to deal with that that seems to me to be some of the elephant in in the room as well that you know this this aligned infrastructure strategy that we're going to need for some of the scotland projects um to to make sure that we're we're putting these structures in the right place we're getting them built in the right place and being able to marshal it all together i don't think it's quite there yet there seems to be an agreement that we need to have something and then we, we need to decide on this port strategy obviously there's two green freeport bids out at the moment which have not yet been decided as of recording, I believe, but have been decided behind closed doors. We just don't know about them yet. That, I think, will unlock maybe a little bit more movement on this and we can start to kind of decide what pieces of infrastructure are going to go where and, and what um, parts of Scotland are going to be able to do what kind of assembly. The crucial bit in that being that all of this is an effort to try and maximize the amount of returns to kind of local communities in Scotland, right? On, on manufacturing and on people working in ports and being able to kind of deploy these projects on time. Um, that There's just going to be this massive rush towards 2030. Um, and I think having this, this aligned strategy is really important. 
everyone agrees it's really important. <laughs> but my takeaway was that we don't quite have that strategy yet. I don't know, is, is that fair to say, Hamish? You, you were in a session sort of specifically looking at ports and they were talking about this kind of need for, for certainty and what they were looking to do. Do they have that yet? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> you, they do not. Um, I think the problem is that there's so many turbine designs, there's so many floating substructure designs knocking around, everyone's toying up which is going to be the best for their project in whichever area. Um, that if you're a port and they all have different requirements, if you're a port, you don't really want to make an early play on um, designing your infrastructure around a certain type of substructure design for then the for a different one to then be adopted as the um, as the the design of choice. Um, so that was the very much the message from Kishorn Ports. They've got said they've got this big investment expansion growth ready to go they've carried out studies into it they're just waiting to press the button on it but they are unwilling to do so until industry have decided come to them and said look this is how our turbines are going to be designed this is how the the floating structures are going to be designed um because they don't want to be spending millions of pounds on um on infrastructure that then becomes obsolete. So that seems like a big part of it. Um, I think the Green Freeport thing is as well. I was on a session yesterday with Joe Alday from Port Cromarty Firth. They're certainly waiting um, with bated breath and kind of gave some estimations as to what they could, what they will be able to do if they are granted it. Um, and it seems that Cromarty Firth could really become a, a wet storage space for these, these huge structures that are going to be placed in the North Sea. There's developers wanting to go with... Um, kind of approaching the port and wanting space for 50 hundreds of these huge structures so they're trying to work through what that looks like um, but there does seem to be a kind of a gulf at the moment between or perhaps not a gulf that's probably the wrong way, way of describing it but uh not quite uh, continuous thinking or, or clear thinking on the best way to proceed which is impeding things at the moment it probably will come um but um Kishore and port were quite clear in that they said that the cutoff point for uh, harbours making investment decisions is approaching fast in the next couple of years if they're going to be ready for this big boom of work. If not, there's going to be um, bigger bottlenecks than there are already being predicted. Yeah, the, the mood is very kind of hurry up and, and wait, I think. Everyone, everyone agrees they want to get these turbines in the water. Everyone agrees they want to start thinking about making these investments proper. Um but everyone seems to be waiting on someone else to kind of <laughs> tip them off. And that's not necessarily a criticism. I, I, you know, as you say, we're still kind of eight years away from having these things towed out and, and start to be installed. But it, it does feel like this wasn't the conference where people made their letters of intent signing and their MOUs and, and kind of announced all these partnerships. It, this is still, you know, a year, 18 months before that begins to happen. That's the sense that I got. Developers are waiting on ports to say, look, we could accommodate these these structures, these turbines, and ports are looking at developers asking them what structures and turbines are you going to be using? So I think it just requires somebody to take a leap of faith and um, fire the starting pistol on this, and you'd hope that the rest will follow, but because at the moment there is a... <laughs> there seems to be, like you said, Andy, there's a lot of talk about wanting to get turbines in the water, and it does kind of boil down to, well, if you really wanted to that much, then you'd probably just do it, wouldn't you? Just, everyone talks about how much they want to do something. Well, it's in your hands. So. Yeah. I think it's worth maybe end, to end on a, a positive and a wider looking note than just kind of Scotland's challenges. It, it was very clear from the session that I was in as well, though, that this is a global opportunity. Um, I think uh, Alan Hanna from Copenhagen Offshore Partners was saying 
you know, of the entire space of the ocean, you've got something like two two percent of it is suitable for fixed bottom. Something like ten percent of it is is suitable for floating offshore wind. So it's you know five times the scale of, of the, the the possibilities. And uh, for countries that can maybe leapfrog into floating wind, this is obviously a huge opportunity for that engineering expertise to be built here, the manufacturing expertise to be to be built here. Um, it's just a question of getting on with it. When that will be, it seems to be the big question. But I, I will be back uh, booking early to next year's Floating <laughs> Offshore Wind Conference, certainly. Great. Well, that seems like a good point to uh, to, to bring that to a close. Uh, so we'll be back uh, in a moment to talk about something completely different, Nigeria. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And so, uh, yes, with something completely different, uh, Nigeria uh, this week, as in, you know, as in, well, I said this week, many weeks, Nigeria struggles uh, to uh, to export the oil it produces in a uh, in a normal and, and, and financially uh, beneficial way. But but I think this week it was it was quite striking. I think there were a few kind of revelations really about the scale of the problem. So just to sort of put it in context. Last year, uh, Nigeria was producing something like 1.6 million barrels per day, where it had been for a while, you know, sort of a couple of years. And uh, but although Nigeria really has kind of capacity to reach sort of two million, but that's obviously pushing it. This year, we've seen Nigeria's production fall and fall and fall. Uh, in August, it fell below the one million barrel per day mark, um, making it a smaller producer for the first time in a long time. I think I, I can't remember a time when uh, Nigeria was uh, was not the top producer in in Africa. There were some difficult times in sort of two thousand and eight, so maybe there might have been times then, but it was really a uh, really unexpected. That, uh, that Nigeria fell to about 900,000 barrels per day. And this is largely a result of, uh, of theft, uh, so uh, which has been a long-time problem in, in Nigeria. But I think, you know, the problems have really, you know, reached a, reached a peak now. And the scale at which oil is, is being stolen um, can only really be described as industrial. I think the amount of oil that's actually stolen is 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 a bit uncertain. So we know that about six or seven hundred thousand barrels per day of, of of production has been lost. Some of that will be uh, because it's being stolen uh, and then either refined locally or possibly exported. Um, uh, but some of it is because operators just don't see the point in producing at a point when. 
their oil is being stolen or lost into the creeks in some way. So it's a real problem. Um, and it's obviously a real problem for Nigeria and the government. So Nigeria now going into its presidential campaigns uh, due to hold presidential elections in February. And it's a problem because, frankly, the higher oil prices are, the more Nigeria loses out, uh, which is ridiculous for a country that is so highly dependent on oil revenues. The, the problem is that in combination with the fact that a lot of that oil is being lost, uh, Nigeria is paying out sky high uh, petrol subsidies. So Nigerian government pays to import petrol that is then sold to consumers below the price that the Nigerian government is paying for it. This is, uh, uh, on the face of it, an absolutely ridiculous position to be in. Uh, economically, obviously, it makes little sense. Um, but, uh, and it's got to be said that every time, you know, the Nigerian government has said occasionally, yes, let's do something about it, let's change, let's cut subsidies. But every time they do it, they have never quite been able to go through with it um, for various reasons, mainly that uh, unrest essentially breaks out Um Nigerian power generation is something like well, it's in the gigawatts of, of private diesel generators are running. So Nigeria's power is really largely comes from diesel generators. Uh, also, of course, uh, moving goods around, people. So it's, uh, as I say, it's a ridiculous situation. But at the same time, uh, it's a sort of a situation from which there appears to be no quick answer and at a point when the Nigerian oil theft is 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 mounting. So when you think about oil exporters um, who would really benefit from lower oil prices, it's a strange position to be in, but Nigeria's there. Is it a self-reflexive problem where the less revenue they have from obviously legitimate sales, the less they're able to spend on kind of social programs? Does that therefore encourage even more theft, and you end up with this self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that 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 would be that would be quite something quite fair to say. I mean, I think you know the fact is that Nigeria's been producing oil for more than sixty years, and many Nigerians have very little to show for it. I mean, I think if you if you go into the Niger Delta, you will see. Uh, I mean, there's there's this poverty, uh, there's oil spills, there's gas flaring. And people there don't see the rewards of being an oil producer, quite frankly. Uh, so I think, you know, there is this question about when, you know, people live in the Niger Delta and they see the extraordinary riches that are being made from oil. And they also see the challenges that they're facing. I think you know there there is a there is a, a clear sort of a line there, isn't there, to essentially taking matter into your own hands, and you know participating in bunkering, uh, participating in uh, illegal, illegal refining, artisanal refining, they sometimes call it. Um, you know, and obviously there is a sort of a, uh, there's a sort of an ecosystem that has grown up there around around theft of oil. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think there is a problem there. And I think there is also a problem there about the way in which oil rents uh, have historically been, should we say, lost, abused, and particularly in uh, terms of electoral cycles. So politicians who control areas in the Niger Delta have, so they say, uh, been able to channel uh, 
those 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 oil dollars to their political ends. So again, it's kind of a question of who benefits. Um, there are a lot of people in the local area who benefit in ways that they might not when oil is being produced in a more standardized uh, traditional fashion so there's yeah there's a host of perverse incentives the story that you reported on this week though i think highlights the scale of that industrialization of theft right <laughs> like just nuts yeah yeah so so the the this 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 sort of uh the story of this sort of four kilometer illegal pipeline that was discovered uh, which seems like uh, quite the discovery, shall we say, to not have noticed a <laughs> four-kilometer pipeline coming out of uh, the Transescravos uh, system. So they say it's been there for nine years. So this is clearly not a fly-by-night operation. Um, and yet there's a question there around how on earth how on earth could you have not noticed this for nine years? I mean, I think there's clearly an amount of engineering that goes into it. This is clearly not just, you know, kind of guys with a with 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 a hacksaw and some buckets. This is a sort of a professional uh, professional theft. And uh, you know, I you know dread to say it, but it looks like you know the sort of you know the welding on the uh, on on the pipe uh, connections, and and obviously the the sheer scale of the operation looks like at least some level of support from the industry. And I think that's you know the so I spoke to a, a local analyst who said, you know there there is this this entire you know kind of connivance in in oil theft which kind of come goes from the top down, right? There are you know politicians involved, and that goes right down to community members and oil company workers um and so you know one of the allegations that we see again and again is around nnpc and the extent to which some nnpc workers may well be involved nnpc officially has said you know there'll be sort of zero tolerance that they are you know if they have you know any tips then they are willing and, and able and, and and hoping to kind of crack down and they have said this for some time but you know clearly there is little actual drive to 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 to, to make those arrests so yeah there there is this 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 ongoing problem that we have seen um and you know that's kind of a question around security um around who's getting paid and um you know there there's clearly a, a a real challenge in terms of 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 trying to resolve the sticky issue and i think it kind of quite is quite striking in many ways i think you know obviously looking at a sort of a uk parallel right i think you know obviously that we are there there is nowhere near the uh, that sort of level of problem in 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 the uk but you know there's sort of discussion around fracking that that kind of often come up right around sort of community payments around how you how you make it work i think it there, there does seem to be a sort of a, a, quite an interesting parallel, right? Is it enough to say? I think there was reports this week saying that the government was going to offer you know people around you know sites where fracking might go on something like a thousand pounds. And I think there there is a kind of a question there: is that is that enough, right? I mean, I think I'm not I'm not suggesting to say the, the the good folk of Lancashire will take matters into their own hands and start hot tapping uh, pipelines, um, but I think there is a question there about about how you get sort of communities on side, and I think there is 
a real sense that uh, in Nigeria there has not been a, a way to, to 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 do this. This is in many ways the opposite model, and I think it's it's often been held up as the way in which not to do it. And I think the idea around kind of bringing the community on the side and 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 trying to 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 make the case for uh, you know sort of local development part of that and and part of the ways in which production happens is is is, is going to be really critical. So. It's 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 an ongoing question for for Nigeria, but I think and and just to you know, Andy, you, you tried to leave the last segment on on a positive note. I think I would, I would, I'm, I'm going to end up on a, on a slightly negative note and say uh, it seems likely that the problem is not going to improve before February, and then whoever gets into power, you know, there are sort of three well two main contenders. Whoever gets into power is going to face uh, a hell of a challenge turning around the debt problem the subsidy problem and this oil theft problem so i think nigeria it's fascinating it's amazing in many ways but uh, it's it's a hell of a task i think that's probably a good place to, to, to end on so uh thank you hamish thank you andy i've been ed reed thank you for listening out loud is the podcast from energy voice leading the global energy conversation Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.